Father, we're thankful that we have many blessings from you. We say we're thankful, but it is the case in many, many days that we don't give our attention to those blessings. We don't consider all that you are at work and doing in our lives, and we only consider what we wish we had. Contentment, Father, is the biblical command of all Christians that we would know that you have already worked on our behalf and done all that we need and have determined what it is that is best for us. So, Father, I pray that contentment would reign in our hearts. And despite that, Father, we do have needs, and we've brought many of them to you already today. I pray, Father, for rain as well. We've considered the fact that this is a dry summer, but it's getting worse, and we know, Father, that you have the capacity to change that, so we ask that you would. And, Father, ironically, as we sit in a dry climate, we study about a time in which the world was covered in water which is a reminder in itself that be careful what we want. For though we may ask for things, we don't always consider their magnitude or their significance to your plan. So I ask, Father, that you would always remind us that we care more for your will than our own and pray in that way. And so let the lessons that we study today, Father, be according to your will. May they instruct us so that we may live more according to your will and may it Remind us, Father, at all times that your plan is so much greater and wiser than anything we might propose. We pray these things as we study today in your power and in your name. Amen. Genesis 8. I thought for a half moment about changing the sermon because it was Father's Day and, you know, don't people expect thematic preaching, you know, something for the day. Then it occurred to me this is actually the perfect story. Because today we see Noah and his family in this boat as the storm is ending and as the flood subsides and the ship will eventually land on the top of a mountain and they all come out and, and we'll see later today that he has a sacrifice on an altar and there's this whole series of events and I thought, that's really perfect for Father's Day. You've got Dad taking the family out in a boat, <laughs> completely ignoring the warnings about bad weather, which dads are often prone to do. They get out and then they get lost. They don't know where they are. They eventually run aground and of course, what does Dad do to make the best of it? We have a barbecue when we get out. It's Father's Day all over again, just told from a different point of view. I think this is a perfect story for the day. So just to set our scene again here as we try to remember what we were studying last week, chapter 7 ended. That was the first half of the flood. Literally the two chapters, 7 and 8, form first and second halves to the flood story. When we last heard from Noah and his family, they were floating in the ark. The waters were done pouring. They had just finished the pouring from above and below. The water level has been rising now. It's been 150 days as it was given to us last week. And now at the very end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, we literally reach the pinnacle of the flood story, both of the waters themselves and of the narrative concerning the flood story. And so in chapter 8, we take a turn now and we go backward, if you will, back to where the land is dry, starting in verse 1. Read with me. We'll read the first four verses and then we'll take the rest of the chapter in chunks. Verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Well, the statement that opens this chapter is a memorable one, even without a 
a careful analysis of it, it's clear enough that there's a turning point being described in that moment. God remembering Noah. It does seem to suggest that he had been off doing other things, perhaps a bit busy for a while, and now all of a sudden, like someone who's left something in the oven, oh, wait a minute, Noah, that's right. Well, certainly suggests that, but we know better. That's not the intention of the text. It's really a turn of phrase. In fact, scholars call it a Hebrewism, or a way of saying this is a colloquial phrase in Hebrew. Its meaning is something different. If you think Moses is implying God forgot, think again. What he really means is that God turned again to attending to Noah, or turned his attention back to dealing with Noah. Never a matter of him forgetting, but simply a reflection of the fact that now it's time for God to go back to Noah's family and complete what he began, to finish what he started. Because up till now, Noah's been cared for in that ark. He's been set aside, in a sense, and God's been dealing with the world through this period of water and wrath being poured out on the earth in the form of the flood. So having finished with his wrath on the earth, he's ready to return now to the to dealing with the survivors. Chapter 8 tells us it's been 150 days, or literally half a year, when counted according to the Jewish calendar, which is based on a lunar month, not a solar month. So rather than having 365 days in a year, 150 for them represents about half a year. After that half a year, that six months or so, 150 days, the ark, we're told, rests on the mountains of present-day Turkey, the range called Ararat. We have a peak within that range we call Mount Ararat, but that's not implied here. In other words, we don't know exactly where on the range of Ararat that the ark settled. We just know it's somewhere in that range, which is in present-day Turkey. Many have made a career of trying to find the ark up, up there somewhere, and obviously to this day no one has definitively identified it, but it's somewhere there. We're told this is happening on the 17th, 17th day of the seventh month. The Jewish people, as I said, have a different calendar, but, but they also had two calendars historically. For themselves, they started with a calendar that we today would call the civic calendar. But at a point later in their history in Exodus, God changed the Jewish calendar. He basically took the calendar and turned it six months so that what was previously the first month of their year became their seventh month and everything else turned accordingly. For us, that would be as if God came and told us no more is January 1st, your new year. July 1st now is new year. Similarly, you will no longer celebrate Independence Day on the 4th of July. You'll celebrate it on the 4th of January. It's that kind of a switch. It took place in Exodus when God determined to reset their calendar so that the first month of the year would be the month that they commemorate Exodus in, or the Passover. Now, that calendar shift here produces an interesting outcome when I look at this date. The ark rests on the 17th day of the seventh month, according to what was likely the civil calendar at this point in time. But the religious calendar, when it's finally given centuries later, changes the seventh month and moves it to the first. Well, the 17th day of the first month is the day Christ rose from the dead. It's his resurrection day. And therefore, when we see the ark resting here, we're seeing the ark, which we know is a picture of Christ, resting from its work on the same day that Christ himself rested from the work of redemption, having completed his work on the cross and risen and rested, seated next to the right hand of the Father. The full picture of the ark here is continued all the way now to the point at which God assured its resting day would match the resting day of Christ 
in that respect. The actual process now of drying up the waters is described just in brief detail. We looked a little at that last week, so we will only add a few new details this week. We're told in this part of the chapter, chapter 8, that a wind is now blowing. God has caused a wind to blow, and that is a part of how the water is drying up. What's really interesting about that description is the word wind here in Hebrew is ruach. It's exactly the same word as in Hebrew for spirit, which reminds us immediately of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Remember I said last week that as we see the world now covered in water, it reminds us of how the world itself was created. Formless, void, covered in water. Here again now it seems to be similar in that respect. And here's another similarity. Back in Genesis 1, verse 2, when God was prepared to begin making the world in the form He wanted it, the first thing we hear is that the Spirit, Ruach, is moving over the surface of the deep or over the surface of the waters. And now, here again, you see the very first action of God when he's ready to take this world of water and turn it back into an inhabitable space. You see a wind, a ruach, blowing across the surface of the waters. I do believe their words are meant differently. I think here the word is literally meant to mean wind, not spirit. But in Hebrew, the Hebrew reader would have seen the two words as similar and understood them as synonyms and would have immediately remembered this is a recreation event. God doing again something like what he did the first time. Now, the word here suggests something else. It suggests the beginning of some climate change from what was in place before the flood. God now is producing wind across the earth. The temperature differentials that would come from the lack of a water canopy around the earth would then result in, among other things, wind. That wind on water leads to evaporation, which leads to clouds, and that then produces the water cycle that eventually leads to rain. I think you're seeing here the very, very beginnings of a new type of climate that followed the the events of the flood. Last week, we looked at how God removed so much water. In Psalm 104, we heard about how the mountains were raised, the valleys and the oceans were, were made deeper, so the water just sought an equal level. It flowed down into the basins and filled the seas, leaving earth exposed. But naturally, as that great runoff occurs, you have gorges being created, canyons being carved, and also a few pockets of water left behind on the land. Orphaned pockets of water that didn't quite flow all the way off. Maybe they got caught in a low point in the earth. We call those lakes. And in some cases, sea lakes like the Great Salt Lake were left behind from this rapid runoff of water from the earth. Interestingly, we have proof today that many of the tallest mountains were once underwater. For example, scientists can find fossilized sea creatures deposited on some of the highest mountain ranges in the world. The only way you get them there is if there was seawater above them at some point in the past. Also, many mountains are volcanic in their origins. They were created from lava flowing up out of the Earth's mantle and then being deposited on the surface of the Earth. Mount Ararat is a particularly interesting example. It's also a volcanic mountain range. But it's made up of a very unique kind of rock. We call it pillow lava because it's a bulbous, soft form of lava rock. There's only one way the earth creates pillow lava. That's from lava erupting underwater in the seabed of the the earth. That's how you get pillow lava. So Mount Ararat was formed by an underwater volcano, and yet today it's 17,000 feet high. There's no other way to explain that, except that at one point in the past, the water was high enough to cover Mount Ararat. Verse 5, moving on, so we see the beginnings of this process, God moving the water off the earth and beginning to prepare for Noah to exit the ark. Verse 5, 
The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about, at the end of forty days, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven. And it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came out to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Well, at this point, the ark we know is already resting. That happened earlier in this chapter, after 150 days. But there's still water as far as the eye can see. So Noah knows he's not floating anymore. He can tell they've run aground. But he's waiting for some further sign to say it's okay now to walk out of this boat. After two and a half months from the moment he, went, he runs aground, wait two and a half more months, according to the text, and now the tops of mountains are visible. So the scene is changing. The landscape is changing. Where before he knows I'm still, but I don't see anything else but water. Two and a half months goes by. Now, not only is he still, but now I can see little islands all over the place. So I see islands around me, as he would have seen it from his perspective, looking across the water. This gives him an occasion to say, I need to find out just how much land has been exposed. And he begins by releasing these birds, two different types of birds. In the case of the second bird, he releases a dove multiple times. Let's start with the first bird, a raven. A raven is an unclean animal, according to the way Moses describes these animals later in the giving of the law. And as an unclean animal, Noah only had two of these birds. Remember, he only takes multiple copies of the clean so these birds, he would have had male, female, that's it. So why did he risk releasing one of these birds? What was his purpose in letting one of these birds go? Well, it's obvious that he's looking for some kind of sign, some kind of feedback on what's going on outside the boat. He must have assumed that this bird is either going to come back to him, or if it stays out, then he'll release the other one and they'll find their way together eventually. They're not going to go too far, one without the other. Besides, we know God's in control of all of this. He won't have brought two ravens along only to have them separate and not find each other later. Ravens feed on carcasses. They feed on carrion. So they'll eat dead meat. So if this bird, as we see it, is moving back and forth over the waters, what that means to us is from Noah's perspective, he sees the bird every now and then flying by, flying by. Probably a lighting on rotting flesh that may be floating in the water somewhere or on those tops of those mountains or maybe even on the ark itself. But the point is, it's happy as a clam. It's fine. It's doing well. It's out there doing what it needs to do, flying around, not, in, not needing to come back. What it means is the bird is not lacking for food, not lacking for things to consume its attention. And if the bird needs rest, it can land in one of those other spots and then go back to eating. It stays away from the ark. There's never an indication that it ever returns to the ark. And therefore, Noah is concluding from this, we would imply, the text implies, that there is not yet a safe environment in which he can leave the ark. There's still too much rotting dead animals. There's still not enough land. The bird seems to be moving constantly, so it's not found a home, and it's able to survive on what's still out there. After seven more days, he decides to try again, so now he sends out a dove, now, 
We know that he's waited seven days before sending out the dove because later in verse 10, when he sends it out the second time, the text says he waited another seven days, implying the first time he waited seven, now he's waiting another seven. He'll eventually wait a third seven before he sends out the third dove. So there's seven days in between each of these bird releases. Why does he release the dove this time? And in the first case, why does it return? Well, dove are clean animals, according to Scripture. A clean animal, in this case, means he only alights on dry land. Doves won't land in water. They won't land on wet ground, generally. They prefer very clean ground, clean, dry trees, clean, dry land. They do not eat meat. They'll only eat seeds. And they prefer valleys. Doves are typically found in low-lying spots. They do not prefer high reaches of mountains, and that's partly because of their diet. They look for seeds. They look for trees that bear seeds. They typically are lower-altitude trees, and seeds tend to fall into low points. So the, the doves tend to go to very low areas. So a dove, if it's released, is going to stay away only if it finds suitable habitat. The fact that this dove found nowhere to land but returned to the boat tells us that the ground is not prepared yet. It's not dry enough. Even the parts that are exposed are still too wet or soggy. There's nothing compatible with what dove are looking for. So it's a safe test for Noah. He waits another seven days. He returns. He sends the same dove out a second time. This time it returns with an olive leaf. Now, olive trees are unique in one respect more than others, I guess, in this context. They will not only live, but they'll actually grow and sprout new leaves while submerged underwater. You can completely flood an olive grove and those trees will live and they'll continue to grow even underwater. So the trees here are still growing, but now more importantly, they've been exposed. Some grow on mountainsides. They like to grow in higher elevations. So some of the early pieces of land that have been exposed at this point include olive branches, olive trees, and they're blossoming. But yet the dove returns. The fact that it returns indicates that the water is still too high. The dove did not want to remain away from the boat, though there is some signs of life, and God shows that through this branch or through this leaf, it's not sufficiently prepared for Noah and for his family. But now we reach seven more days. A third dove is released. This time it never comes back. And that begins the process of letting Noah out of the boat because it proves we're ready. The land now has been prepared. In a story like Noah, with so many pictures, so much symbolism embedded in the story, it's probably worth a moment to ask ourselves, could we find some reasonable connection between these birds and their release with what we know this story is picturing, which is the judgment of the world to come, the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, the eventual second coming of Christ, and all that surrounds those days. This is a picture that's been consistent throughout the story of Noah. Are these elements a part of that picture? Well, there have been many ideas proposed. Not all of them make sense to me. Some are pretty far-fetched. There is one that I prefer, but I'll, I'll say up front, it could be wrong. This is speculative on my part, but it seems to fit. I prefer to see the birds as having meaning in relationship to the ark itself. The ark is who? Christ. So the ark is the release point. This, these birds are leaving the ark. So if the ark is Christ, then at this stage in the picture, you have the ark still holding the body of believers, the church. We are in Christ. And remember, we said that the body of believers entering the ark, the door closing and the ark floating on the judgment waters is a picture of how we are raptured and protected from the coming judgment that will come upon the earth. 
So here we are still in the midst of that. By analogy, we'd be saying this is still during tribulation. The flood's not over yet. The judgment is still going on on the earth. And these birds are sent forth from the ark, therefore, during the tribulation, during the ongoing time of judgment. Looking at the raven first, there's very few references to ravens in Scripture, but the most notable one is in connection with Elijah. You may know the story from 1 Kings 17 when Elijah is fed by ravens that God delivers to him so that he would be sustained during a famine that God brought upon the land. That connection seems to be purposeful here in my mind because Malachi tells us that right before the second half of tribulation, we should expect to see a visit from Elijah. Malachi says in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, and so I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The predecessor to the second half of tribulation, one predecessor is that Elijah will reappear, come to the earth, and as a herald, begin talking about the coming of the Lord. In fact, John the Baptist, in his day when he came before Christ's first coming, John the Baptist himself was a picture of what Elijah will do before the second coming. And he came speaking to the world about Jesus' first coming in the same way that Elijah will ultimately come fulfilling this prophecy before Christ's second coming. And a raven just seems too closely matched to Elijah to ignore this possible connection. That a raven's call, it's that loud crowing sound that you can hear from a long way away, the sound that it likes to make when it's flying around, would seem to be a parallel to the thought of an Elijah walking the world during the time of tribulation, calling to everybody, saying, Jesus is about to return. Jesus is about to return. And about mid-trib, which is the reference to the great and terrible day of the Lord, that's a reference to the second half of tribulation, that would be the timing for this release, if you will, of the raven. So then, if that's a good connection, how do the doves fit in? Does it play out further? Well, we know the dove is often a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We see that most clearly when we see Jesus at his first baptism. The dove is the theophany, we call it, or a, a visible sign of God. The theophany of the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ. It came in the form of a dove. So if that is a reasonable assumption here, let's look at how that would play out. You have the first dove, that being the Holy Spirit. It leaves the world and returns to the boat. Well, that would become a clear picture of, of how the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth during the time of the rapture. There is no present work of the Holy Spirit once the church is removed. Then you have the second dove. It's released, but it comes back with an olive leaf. Now, olive trees are pictures of typically of Israel in Scripture. Well, in tribulation, the first work of the Holy Spirit in the world following the rapture is, according to chapter 7 of Revelation, the making of 144,000 new believers from among only the Jewish family, the tribes of Israel. So the very first work of the Holy Spirit in the world following rapture is to bring Jews to faith. Remember, salvation is of the Jews, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, and it never changes. So here you have in the tribulation the beginnings of new faith in the world, starting with the Jewish nation, represented by that, that new sprig of life, that new leaf on the olive tree coming back to life. So the Spirit's gone out into the world and done a work with the nation of Israel. And then finally, from that beginning, the Spirit goes out another time in the form of that third dove and remains in the world. 
For Revelation tells us in chapter 7 that that 144,000 seed group of believers become the start of a new wave of evangelism. And from those 144,000 Jews, many of different tribes, nations, and tongues come to believe during tribulation. And the Spirit remains with them as He stays out in the world. That could be what this means. Remember, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But it would appear as though that's the picture being drawn here. That as the tribulation comes down to its end and winds down, the Spirit is working in the world in these ways. Finally, the flood comes to an end. Look at verse 13. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. So the flood now comes to an end. Remember it began in the 600th year of Noah's life. Now we're told we're in the 601st year of his life and we've reached the end. Specifically it says on New Year's Day, first day of the first month, 29 days after that last dove was released. So Noah here has sent the three doves out, waited 29 days, and now looks out again and realizes the water gone. And now he waits another 57 days. After 57 days, the earth is dry, the ground is firm, and he's ready to leave. Noah, if you're counting, has spent 378 days in the ark. Now, that includes the week he went in before the flood. If you take that week out, you're down to 371 days since the flood began. But remember, if you look at it from the Jewish calendar and not from our solar calendar today... 371 days represents 365 days in the solar calendar. In other words, the flood event has lasted exactly one solar year, 365 days. It's counted as more days because of the lunar month rather than of the solar month. So the flood event was one week plus a year, that extra week being the week in which they went into the ark early. So now the Lord speaks to Noah. This is probably the first time Noah has heard from the Lord since he was told to enter the ark. A long year in that boat. The last thing that Noah heard God say was, go in, you and all the families and animals. The next thing Noah hears God say is, go out. Let them fill the earth again. These are great examples about how to listen to God better and what it is He wants me to do and how do I know for sure it's time to do something. And then I stop myself and I remember things like this in which the story is so condensed. You have go in and then a few verses later, go out, forgetting that a year took place between those two. And there were a lot of days after the ark hit the ground when presumably Noah might have said it's time to leave. After all, we're sitting still. We can get out. There's a little bit of land. It's dry enough, I think. We can cuddle around the ark for a while. It's better than being in this boat, after all. But he didn't do that. He stayed in the boat. Even after the ground was dry, he stayed in the boat 57 days. There's an awful lot of time there, isn't there? 
The thing I have to remember from this story is he heard go in clearly enough that he knew when, and he did it. Then it only stands to reason when the time to go out has come, he'll hear that just as clearly. He doesn't have to guess. He doesn't have to doubt. He just has to obey. That's a big difference between not hearing and not listening. I had no doubt he knew he would hear God when the time was right, but he also knew that because he had not heard, he does the last thing he heard until it changes. That's my standard counsel. Do the last thing you heard God tell you and keep doing it until you hear him tell you to do something else. So at this point, they leave all of the families, all of the animals, and from God's command, they fill the earth. Every animal you see on the earth today can trace its origins to one pair or at most seven pairs. Furthermore, every human being on earth traces his or her parentage back to one of three men, either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. That's it. Now that raises an interesting question that I've been waiting to address for this chapter rather than at an earlier point. And that is the dramatic change in the lifespan of human beings. We saw some of this back when we studied earlier in chapter 5 and we noted the length of life of many of the people that started the world, from Adam down to Methuselah, these eight and 900-year-old people. It seems so outlandish that for the most part, people today have dismissed those numbers as not being credible, not truthful, myths in other words. But the Bible gives us no reason to think that. The Bible speaks absolutely, plainly, authoritatively that those are the real numbers. It makes no attempt to make them symbolic or to imply that they're symbolic. It counts them like you would count any other age, like the ones we see today of 80 or 90 years old. It assumes you will take them literally because it says them literally. For example, Noah himself lives 950 years. He lives 350 years after the flood is over. His sons live into their 600s, which is also consistent with what was seen before the flood. But then, only a generation after that, one generation after his sons, the length of life has been cut in half. They're down to the 300s, which is still a long time. Three generations after that, it's been cut in half again. Now we're down to the 250s. And three more generations after that, it's been cut in half again. Now many have proposed various theories for why it is that the ages drop off so quickly after the flood. The most prominent theory, which you have probably heard, most people have, relates to that loss of the water canopy, the the water that was stored up in the heavens above the expanse. They theorize in various ways that that canopy must have helped men live longer, and then when it disappeared after the flood, that was the reason that all the lives started to change. But honestly, if you think about it, that theory doesn't hold water, so to speak. And here's why. If that long length of life were created by environmental conditions, and that's what that theory proposes, something in the environment influenced the body from the outside and it made the body hardier, less susceptible to disease or live longer, basically. If it were simply environmentally caused, then Noah and his sons would have seen their own lives cut short after the flood. But instead, they lived just as long after the flood as before the flood. Secondly, we would have expected the length of life of those who came after Noah to drop immediately to present day levels and not go there slowly over thousands of years. I mean, after all, if Seth's children could live 
over 400 years under the present conditions, then why can't we? Why are we not able to even get close to those numbers if their conditions environmentally match ours today? Instead, it took almost a thousand years for men's lifespans to drop to anything near present day levels. That doesn't argue for an environmental factor. In fact, it argues strongly against environmental forces influencing the length of life. I think the answer is so much simpler, we may have just overlooked it for how simple it really is. First, we know that all the earth is wearing out according to the curse that God placed on the earth in Genesis chapter 3. He calls it that. The earth is like a garment wearing out. Good at first, getting a little tattered over time, eventually getting really, really bad, and at some point you just got to throw it away because it's not of any use anymore. That's the model. That's the, the manner in which God is working the curse out in the earth. Now remember, it doesn't just affect the physical earth like the dirt and the plants and the sky and the environment. It affects everything that comes from it, everything that traces its origins to it. Among other things, our bodies trace their origins to the dirt, to the earth. So the curse on the earth in chapter 3 of Genesis applies to our human body as well. The human body will get weaker from generation to generation to generation over time. That's how God's curse is applied. Those defects, those weaknesses, were made a part of DNA. The structure that's in our bodies that communicates our, our makeup from one generation to the next is weakening over time. And as the weakening takes place, defects accumulate in the population of human DNA. And as more defects accumulate in the population of DNA, then as people come together and have children, they pass more and more of those defects on and they begin to pool and increase in concentration. Now, at first, there's very few defects. When Adam and woman were first created, they were made perfectly, and the effect of the curse on their bodies only introduced a few weaknesses, just enough to make sure they didn't live forever, but they still had a very long life. Adam and woman had virtually none. Their children only had a few. Their children's children only had a few. That's why even a few generations later, you have Methuselah living 969 years. Very, very slight, slight increase over time. Not enough to really hit them very hard. But then, after the flood, the entire human race now is starting again, but from three families who now begin with a certain amount of defects in their DNA. Unlike Adam and woman who started with none, Seth, Japheth, and Ham now have a sizable number, far more than Adam and woman did. And now, as they intermarry and have children, they're concentrating those defects to a much higher degree. And now the rate of increase grows exponentially. Interestingly, if you chart the ages of human beings from Noah down to present day, it is an exponential curve. It perfectly predicts the growth of defects in DNA. It matches that mathematically almost perfectly. And so as those defects accumulate more quickly, the age drops off very rapidly. That would also explain why today you see disease rates growing faster and faster. You know, there's no mystery from a biblical point of view why asthma's up, why heart disease is up, why cancer is up, why diabetes is up. And we can point to things in the culture and say, well, it's because we're not eating right, we're not exercising, or it's pollution, or it's water quality, or, but it's not the bottom line. The core reason for all of it is the wearing out of human DNA, of the human body, as God designed it. And that wearing out process goes one direction. You know, the only reason why lifespans have appeared to increase over the last hundred years 
is because modern science, in the form of modern medicine, has overcome this trend temporarily and only to a modest degree, masking the effect. Machines keeping bodies alive long after they normally would have died. Drugs compensating for defects long after that person would have died. The length of life will continue to decrease, even as it has since the flood. And this last hundred years is an anomaly in the trend. But our memories are so short, we walk around talking about how cavemen lived 20 years long, and now we get to live 75 years long, which is a complete fallacy. How old was George Washington when he died? 80s. How old was John Adams when he died? 90s. How old was Benjamin Franklin when he died? 90s or 80s? Name someone famous from 250 years ago, and they're all dying in their 80s and 90s, unless something got them very early. The myth is that men only lived a short time in the past, and now we've achieved a long length of life. The reality is that it has been a steady decline until the late 19th century. And then modern medicine kicked in and reversed the trend for about eight decades. And now it's turning over again. Have you noticed? Length of life is now decreasing in Western countries again, despite our best efforts. We're not going to thwart God's purpose. We've only masked it for a short time and convinced ourselves that the trend was the opposite of what it really is. Finally, Noah exits the ark. Let's finish the chapter. 8.20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Noah leaves the ark. And in doing so, the first act he chooses to engage in is a building of an altar followed by a making of sacrifice from some of the clean animals that were taken on the ark. This reminds us of why he had extra animals in the case of the clean. This is the first mention of altars in the Bible. I also believe it's the first time there has been an altar. And here's why. The flood destroyed everything on the earth, but among the things it destroyed was the Garden of Eden. Remember, until the flood, there's no reason to believe the Garden of Eden had ever ceased to exist. Scripture tells us back in chapter 3, when they're kicked out of the garden, that there were angels positioned in front of the entrance to prevent Adam or his descendants from re-entering. It tells us the garden stood there as a reminder of where they once came from. And in its center somewhere, God's presence still dwelled, the Shekinah glory still evident and present, which is why they couldn't enter. If sinful men had walked back in there and been in the presence of a holy and just God, they would have been judged and they would have died instantly for having come into God's presence. So the defense of the entrance was to man's benefit, prevented them from dying in the face of God's glory. But if man ever wanted to see God or approach God or remember God's presence or worship God or bring a sacrifice to God, you didn't need a stone replica of God. You would just go to where God was. You'd go to the entrance to the garden. You could have stood there and looked at his glory from behind the walls or seen something in the distance and known God was there. But that's gone now. Where do you go now to find God? Well, the altar becomes the next best step. You can sacrifice sending that praise heavenward from a place that you declare to be your meeting point for God. In that act of obedience and worship, Noah pleases God and God in response makes a promise. He says, I will never again destroy the earth with water. Now keep in mind, he is not saying he will never again destroy the earth. That much is evident from just the fact that the flood story is a picture of a coming destruction. He has to destroy the earth. He has to replace it. It's under a curse. He's just never going to do it 
with water. In fact, in verse 22, he says all about the earth will remain as it is predictable, regular from the time of this moment until the earth itself ceases. You notice in verse 22, while the earth remains, he says, these things will be true. So for as long as the earth remains, he guarantees he will no longer interrupt its normal cycles with something of this magnitude. There won't be that kind of a solution anymore. But look at verse 21 again, just for a moment. Look what God says. He says, though he will never destroy the earth again with water, don't think that that means he considers the flood to have been a cure for man's ills. He says specifically, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. You take that and you stick it in the middle of that verse and it almost seems to be arguing against what God just said. He said, I'm never going to do this again because... And you might think he's going to say, because it's not necessary, because man has learned his lesson, because I've just solved the problem. No, no, no. He says, I'm never going to do this again because man is going to remain evil and sinful for as long as he is who he is. If it were just about responding to man's sin, if the flood was nothing more than my response to sin, well, then I'd be flooding the world every single day. He says, so I'm committing to never do this again, despite the fact that men are continually evil. It doesn't need more flooding because it won't be fixed by more flooding. Ultimately, I'm going to judge it completely and destroy every last remnant of it, God says in his word. And he will do so while still making an escape available for those who would come to faith in the Messiah. But in the near term, water will no longer be his option. Father, we ask that you would remind us as often as you need to that we rely on you in a world that is being held together by your power. We look to you for guidance and for the instruction we need if we're to be obedient, but sometimes we don't listen very well. We remember, Father, that though you have promised never to destroy the world with water again, that doesn't preclude another kind of destruction and By faith, Father, we've escaped it, but there's a world out there that doesn't know this yet. With all these truths having been given to us from Scripture today, Father, I pray that what we'd learn from them more than anything else is an urgent need to present the gospel, to live it out in our own lives, to obey as best we can, and to be waiting and watching at all times for when the return of Christ will come. Thank you, Father, that we have so many people here who consider their Sundays to be a day in which they would study your word above all else. May that never end. And bring us back next week to celebrate and remember those who have once been here and helped start what we do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.